welcome to another episode of Appointment with Shawnee B. This one from New York again. As you know, we have a sponsor in New York, uh, and we're actually in the sponsor's premises, Hands, Tooth and Stitch Bars in 37th and 8th Avenue. Uh, you go in there, you mention a pint with Shawnee B to Nick Cohen, the owner, and you get a free pint, even if I'm not there. I'm here with a very good friend of mine who I've known for 10, 15 years. He is an absolute character, a man who's marched to his own drum, uh, and he's here today to talk about his life, and uh, he never is shy of his story. Craig Smith, welcome to the podcast. Craig? Thank you, Shawnee B. <laughs> Pleasure to be here sharing a pint of water with you. <laughs> We're having a pint of water. I'm on, Craig will explain why he's having a pint of water later, I hope, but I'm off the booze for January, and so uh, we're sitting in a rather forlorn basement, uh, the only two people in it. It was funny, I had a friend that used to stop for three months of the year, and I never really understood it at the time, but I, I, I do now, so I, <laughs> hats off to the... Um, one of the, we, we met in Singapore, and one of the first things I remember about you was you told me that you nearly became a professional footballer. I, I did, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, playing at Sheff- with Sheffield United for the longest time, and I, I think the time came where the, you get told whether you've been taken on as a professional. Uh, Dave Bassett, I think it was, said to me, uh, Craig, he says, you've got the heart, but you haven't got the technical ability. Oh. And I, at the time, I, I didn't really sink in what that meant, but I, I completely understand it now. It was the first time I actually had to come to terms with failure. That, that took me about three days to get out of my bedroom. I written, I've written a piece in, 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 in a play I wrote, which is, what happens to the kid whose dreams are shattered when he's 12 and no one recognises it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's pulled from you. You yeah. can't go on about it because it's pulled from everyone. Yeah. But it is a dream yeah. and it is failure. Yeah, and it and is for reasons that you kind of can come to terms that you can you know from the twelve guys around you yeah. that you're not in the top three or four. Yeah, there's a point at which you actually realise that you're in touch with the sense of who you are, and that's okay, and it doesn't matter where you fit in the pecking order, or you actually you're one of those people that feels very conscious of what everybody else is doing. And as a result, that it becomes a, the philosophy which you live your life by, which is always competing. You find a person that you, know, that you aspire to and you, you go after that. That was my mission, to be better than this person. In the north of England, we were either workers or miners or we went, we went to fight. There's always this cla- been this class struggle with the north of England and the south of England. And I feel like I grew up knowing my place. I actually did quite well at school. Right. My dad got six O-levels, and he said, I'll give you £10 for every one you get, you get beyond me. So that wasn't very generous. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> no, because I got seven, so I got a tenner out of it. <laughs> but the, like, the funny thing was that he wanted me to apply that and, and use it, so I went to, to study architecture. Did you finish me. a degree in architecture? No. no. I, I flunked, and I actually applied for the Marines. Wow, I never knew that. And uh, at the same time as applying for the Marines, I applied for... Why did you apply for the Marines? What I got from sport was a camaraderie. I felt like there was a place that I fit in. And anything physical, I excel at. Anything Mm. about leading a a group, a team, like going into battle. Did you you fight a lot when you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't a fighter. I guess I was like a mother hen. And so you had a gang. I, I had a, you know, like I grew up, my dad was in hospital for the, like, I guess this is a, a big part of my life. My dad had contracted a strange disease 
virus called Guillain-Barre syndrome. I haven't heard of it. it. At the time, there were, I think there was only 17 people diagnosed with it. I, you know, I didn't see my dad at home for maybe a year. Was it autoimmune it, problem? It, it, yeah, it was. And, and basically, it's, um, he was walking on crutches. And then uh, within a week, he was on intensive care on full life support. Shit. The only thing he could actually use was his eyes. But uh, it felt like a lifetime. And growing up at that time, like I grew up with my mom and my sister. And yeah. I think that that formulative time when you needed a dad around, yeah, yeah. my dad was fighting for his own life. In hindsight, that's something that I look back at. And having that, not having a man around, being the kid at school, everybody bullied because I didn't have a dad. Really? Oh, I, I, I didn't have a, an older sister. Sorry, an older brother, like yeah. all my mates did. Yeah. It was one of those things where I went from being that kid that was the big kid that everybody used to pick on to I've got to protect myself. Right. And so I started playing sports and, and getting more aggressively into I've got to prove who I am. I put my stake in the ground as a, as a man. My mum taught me to fight. She taught me to punch. Right. Uh, kept coming home out like crying and because I'd been beaten up because somebody's storming ball on the on the yard and she did just she remember in the garage she told me how to get the stance and then she says just smack him in the face as hard as you can and I <laughs> promise you they'll never give you trouble again and it, you know like it worked kind of true yeah did your dad's health improve then or is he still with us or yeah no he's he's with us now and he's he's they're awesome and uh, you know they're my inspiration I look back to. To those times, and I, I believe I have said, if he ever listens to this, oh, it would be an interesting, an interesting experience to sit across from him, see his face. But I, I have said, I think that that was one of the best things that happened to our family, Dad. You know, and I, I really thank you for going through it and for fighting. And more, my mum will always say, well, everybody worries about your bloody dad. What about me? You know, like, <laughs> I had to bring two kids up. I had to work. We didn't have insurance. Yeah. But yeah, I look but I look at that. Whenever I struggle, it's like, it's nice to have these things in life that you look back at and you go, oh, that's what it feels like. I respect you. Now I've experienced something similar. Yeah. It didn't kill me then. Mm. You know, where each time I kind of hit a wall, it's like, well, you know, I remember when this happened. I remember when like, I didn't make it as a professional footballer. I remember when I didn't make it as an architect. I remember when I lost that job. And the moments in time that are the crossroads. So let's go back to the Marines thing. What happened there? My granddad told me some stories about when he was in the war. Right. First, it started out by saying... You never make it in the Marines. You don't have the discipline. And I'm right. like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he, he went on to tell me some stories about the war. And it, I think one of the biggest things that I remembered was I questioned what was it about the Marines or the forces or, you know, it was camaraderie, like mm. teamsmanship, mm. taking care of each other, but also travel, yeah. discovery. Yeah. Not dying on my own doorstep. I always used to say that, you know, I don't want to live and die on my own doorstep. And yeah. all my family, the people I knew, all did. That's and will. And for whatever reason, I just didn't have that satisfaction of acceptance. There was a, a, an interview and an acceptance to a, a two week officer training course in Dartmouth. And then I also got acceptance to an art college. And like after the conversation with Grandad, I was like, eh, maybe I'll go to art school. Right. So I went to art school. 
that was the really the time where I was starting to be exposed to people come traveling from different places to, to come and study and I was like okay so I'm, here I am born and bred in Sheffield now I'm studying in Sheffield and I, I missed the opportunity to go somewhere and, yeah. experience, and maybe if I'd done that maybe I wouldn't have had that lust to, to, to yeah. go adventure but instead I, I kind of stayed close I also like at that point when I wanted to do architecture I remember the peer pressure and I was very strong willed but I was easily persuaded I was still the crowd pleaser at that yeah, time and yeah. very much so and I think that there were a lot of people that I kind of like respected older that were like oh you know it's, it's a longer course than medicine and I think you know, so what do you want to go do that for? It's like, you want to get a job, you know, like you're not going to have any money. There was a time where what was said was gospel. So what granddad said or yeah. what dad said, it, it's right yeah. before yeah. the internet. And I, I've had to transition from I know best to maybe I don't yeah. to the only thing I am certain of is what's going on inside me. Uh, it's the fear that is driven implemented as a byproduct of the class system yeah. that, that does that different is not good you yeah. know you're supposed to fall in with the regiment yeah. Yeah. we've been taught to not accept people that are excelling in a specific area because they're not playing the game the way we've been taught, taught the rules yeah, exactly so how did you get into the art game what, what happened there well I finished art school Sheffield Polytechnic towards the end I started I was always a big drinker yeah, always a big drinker. Same. At that point, that was my first introduction to drugs. Up until that time, I, I don't even think I smoked a joint yeah. really. But then I started getting into whiz. Speed, What's whiz now? Speed, right? <laughs> and uh, and that was part of just fueling the drinking, sustaining yeah. the drinking, keeping system. going. And then the you know like magic mushrooms and things yeah. like that started to happen in the later years. And that was being introduced by these people coming in. And really my life became about smoking, drinking and art and doing yeah. stuff like and partying. Yeah. And so I started thinking, well, why don't I, instead of starting a career in, in England, what about traveling and starting a career somewhere mm. else? So I, I got my portfolio and... I guess back then I knew that if I, I can't give myself an out, so yeah. one way ticket, you know, like yeah. come back in a box. You're right. If you You're have absolutely to, right. You yeah. know, yeah, yeah. and um, so we got a one way ticket to Hong Kong. And at the time, I didn't even know whether it was a British colony. I thought it was Japan. Honestly, that's <laughs> China. How, that's, yeah. that's how aware and how travelled that was. I think I've been to Blarney's and Ibiza up until then. <laughs> I broke my nose playing football in Holland. Yeah. But I remember that, like, like landing and driving through Hong Kong thinking, what the fuck have I done? You know, yeah. just shitting my pants completely. So it took about two months to pluck up the courage to start going to interviews. And from there on, I went to 36 interviews. It was just complete adventure. So where did you land? The last interview that I went to was with Andy Greenaway at Ogilvy and Maida. Oh. Andy took me on and gave me a job, and I like it was the most exciting thing. And I, know, I couldn't believe the the salary, and you know, like it was just awesome. Well, he's a great guy, Andy, because he's 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 got a wisdom and a calmness about him, and he kind of 
he's got great empathy he's, he's yeah. a, he understands diff- how to handle different people yeah, yeah. and we're he's a bit a, he's a good gardener those of you who want to know who we're talking about can go back to episode 2 of A Pine with Shawnee B where Andy Greenaway tells all these stories but yeah. anyway so so what happened to you then You stay, how long did you stay in Hong Kong for? 7 years I think one of yeah. my the greatest things that I took from Hong Kong was to to be a minority yeah to go from calling chinkies chinkies when yeah. I go to the Chinese chip shop and come from a place that is very racist but yeah. not intentionally yeah. just the way it is they're yeah. different you know to sitting on a tram and people not sitting next to me because I was the white devil yeah. or the, the guaylo it was the beginning of understanding that we're all the same but different like I, I but used, there were a I huge used, number of wank English Mainly oh, English yeah. wankers out there who treated the Chinese fucking. Expat, but that's oh. an, I mean that's an expatriate lifestyle. Yeah. I come from the giving end of a serving servile environment. I come from the receiving end of yes. a servile environment. Yeah, my yeah. grand, my mom's parents were servants. Yes, and grandfather worked down the pit. Interesting. Like, that mindset of I am a minority. This is what it must feel like to be black. Yeah, uh, you know. Did you go uh, there as well? Oh yeah, yeah, course, same. Without a doubt. Amazing. But I've I've now come to understand that it's it's never a novelty to be black. No, no. I didn't go through oppression. If this was day in day out, and your parents weren't were, weren't successful because yeah, and, uh, they weren't accepted because cl- of the color of the skin, it's clear we're not trivializing. We're getting a very privileged insight yeah. into it. Yeah. But it's the expatriate motherfuckers that were yeah. on the yeah. receipt, on the giving end that created that problem for yeah. us, that made us unwanted or yeah. unwelcome. Yeah. And so I understand that. But I, I think. That and so did you go quite down into the underbelly of Hong Kong with? When I started that uh, that job, Andy Greenaway was like, he was really a great guide. He mm. was that big brother, that father figure that helped me navigate yeah. through life. But then he left to go to Singapore. And I think at that point, things started to go Pete Tong, you know? Yeah. There was one, my first writer, I also have to give credit to uh, a guy called Peter Bailey. And Peter Bailey... He was also struggling to find his place. Yeah. What Hong Kong did is it, it, it's a melting pot for, for, for wanderers and drifters that are searching for something. Yeah. And Peter Bailey used, used to see me kind of like turning up for work or being hungover. And he'd, he'd actually say, why don't you come climbing? Why don't you come climbing with me? And he got me out on the rock. And that actually transformed my life. It, it allowed me to reconnect with that team spirit land, that like putting yourself out there and getting back in touch with nature and that really kind of salvaged the spiral that I was inevitably yeah. going to like hit I had to decide between drink and whether I was going to continue climbing because it was dangerous I'd, I'd turn up on the rock 6 o'clock <laughs> on Saturday morning I'd have sewing machine leg and I'd have the, the drink hangover ditters we'd climb through the summer and through the winter we'd run trail called the Macklehorse Trail which is right. a 100 kilometre run he was actually taking a team to run the Macklehorse you have supporters to come and support you at the different stations bring you dry salt yes. bring you some food and just yes. a friendly face and like I mean 100 kilometres is pretty fucking long yeah, yeah. and I turned up with a backpack some spare socks after five pints of Guinness like when they were like 10k into it and I ended up running it the whole way with them did you really? yeah 
Jeez. I didn't get a medal or anything. No. But, but, <laughs> Why did you? But, it, but I probably deserved it. I was one. drunk. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like that was an example of like how extreme it was. Plus ten, minus ten. Well, that's the 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 peak, the best version of me. Right. And then there's this other version yeah. which is advertising, cronyism, tapping into that expatriate world, yeah. which was the the seduction to the dark side, if you will. Yeah. It's interesting yeah. that you throw advertising under the bus, which I totally agree with, by the way. Yeah. But just that fucking bullshit lifestyle that you loved and you hated and yeah. you knew was wrong, but yeah. you did it. I guess it feel, I felt like I was being pimped out, but I allowed it to happen. Yeah. And I, like, but the, the, the wankers out there, and feel free, of course, to do your usual hatchet jobs on this conversation... You know, they get on me going, well, why did you go into it then, you fucker? You know, look at all the money it gave you. Look yeah. at you and you're yeah. able to stand on your fucking yeah. horse now going on advertising. Yeah, I am doing that. And I am very grateful for the money I got from advertising. But yeah. my point is this. Advertising could be so much better. Yeah. And it could be more, have much more fucking integrity about it. Yeah. And it could do more good for the world. Yeah. And it could be, look after its people better. It's run by fucking wankers. Yeah. And yeah. that's my point. Because most people in their heart who work in the industry and have done yeah. for the last 20 years, deep down, deep, deep down in their heart, they know it is a fucking rancid yeah. thing that could be beautiful. Yeah. Could I, be beautiful. I think, I mean, that's, that's, I couldn't agree more. And someone said to me about my time in. In Hong Kong and when they first met me early on they, they said yeah he's like, you were a really nice guy and I'm surprised because you were a fucking wanker you know like I didn't realise yeah. but now I'm getting to know you yeah. you know and I, and I think that that was the first time where I realised that that advertising if you're not careful will create a facade because what we do as advertisers is we create facades all that I learned about applying a, a, an essence, a story to a brand, I started to do that. Right? It's like I've got a public face and a private face. Wow. And I think that Hong Kong was the first time where I started realizing that I want to bring these closer together. Mm, yeah. But the problem was I didn't know who the fuck I was uh. because I'd been pretending to be these things. So the next thing I needed to learn was how do I get in touch with self Mm-hmm. And, and stop projecting that back outwards instead of keeping self inside and all the feelings and everything that goes with it and just keep polishing this facade. What I learned in advertising, which is the essence of a story of a product or how it's used or what it's for, or yeah. the essence of the need of the consumer and meeting that need is the same story or the same way of like discovering the essence of a person. You create the person, understand the person, and tell that story. And if that story doesn't match the product, you don't introduce yeah. them. There's and a Gladwell-esque book in that, I reckon. Maybe. I think so. Yeah, get I on to so. it. What, so you, when did you you moved to uh, Singapore? Then is that right? So yeah. So back to the original question, which is, did you get into the underbelly of Hong Kong? So yes, I definitely got into the underbelly of Hong Kong, and it was. When Andy left, <laughs> and and I, you know, and I, I met a new group of friends, and I spent less time with Pete and less time on the rock, mm. and I really discovered ecstasy and mm. coke and mm. partying and, mm. and but the the debauchery and insanity that came with it was just 
this is if there's an area of my life where I have to bite my tongue, this is one of those times because there are there are times and, and experiences that took place that I, I, I still haven't really gone Buried. deep enough <laughs> to kind of uncover. I them. think they're better no. off staying there. <laughs> and I want I do say one one day there's going to be a movie that's going to expose this from my point of view. Wow. And, you know, like I think that the one of the low points. One, one, one morning I, I woke up with a tattoo and I remember my girlfriend at the time punching me in the face and saying, you told me you were going to wait for me to have a tattoo. And I got to work and my writer had the same tattoo. And I'm and like, where remember. did we get this from? And it was like Ricky and Pinky's opposite the flying pig in Wan Chai. Mad. And I had a video camera. It was like the trickle of one big Christmas party or you know and I had the video camera and I stuck it into one of the girly bars and the curtain punched me yeah. and I remember like laying on my back like what just happened yeah. and the bouncer came out and I ran in put my video camera down and I says look after this and I ran back out and started getting into it with these bouncers that's one of those moments where I just think about the trouble that you can get yourself into and how things can go really wrong really I'm quickly. the same I mean I think one of the things that was amazing to me was how easily a, a, a night kind of can go from oh, just yeah. just and normal yeah. to mental yeah. like in, in, in a taxi ride if you don't know how don't to know say no and you enjoy the adrenaline of yeah. the ride you know like know. there are people in my life that I love dearly I'll always be there for them if they you know but yeah. I, I think there was a time during my party days where I used to be terrified of bumping into him yeah. but when I bumped into him it was awesome yeah. you know <laughs> it, was, it was the idea of know. knowing where it's going to go that moment before you like you decide to have that pint or have that line or yeah. whatever it is and it's just the knowledge the wisdom that you have that's like you know this is not necessarily a good idea but it it always seems to be a good idea shortly after. And then how, so why did you go to Singapore? So I went to Singapore, Andy Greenaway offered me a job. Were you pretty much spiralling out of control by the end in Hong Kong or were you um, still holding it together? Yeah, it was nuts. Right. <laughs> it was nuts. It was really nuts to the point of turning up for work after spending like the night, day in the girly bar. Right. And then turn up at work and continuing work. And that was kind of somewhat acceptable. Nobody yeah. really found <laughs> on it. It's amazing the resilience that you have at that age. Mm. I didn't really know it was wrong. Mm. What actually happened, it's just the, the darkness. Yeah. After a hangover, like I used to call it, it's like the one day, two day hangover. The second, the second day is just the gnarliest. The first day you feel like shit. The second day is the the chemicals in your in your brain are, are starting to reconstitute themselves. Yeah. And that lack of DHA or um, whatever it is that kind of gives you that good spirit that I didn't have. Yeah. That was they were the days that were the suicidal days. When every day becomes that feeling, then you need a drink or you need yeah. a line. That's the the path to addiction. Yeah, you know. Yeah. In my Did you ever get suicidal? I think there's a I, there are moments in my everyday where really? I have moments that are just you know like they're very dark flashes. Really, I'm not a happy person. Trying to talk as candidly as I, as I can, I think for just for the benefit of 
anybody that's listening really yeah. just because I think that it, it's okay to, yeah, I agree. to have feelings of elation and it's okay to have feelings of I just don't want to fucking be here I don't want to yeah. have to go through this and I every day I have those feelings mm. and to a point where I just want to break down then I go to those places of what mum must have gone through what dad must exactly. have gone through my dad told me a, a story of uh, when he was in hospital I remember one time he wheeled himself to the to the stairwell and he says I remember looking down and I wish I wish I could fucking get myself up it up so I could throw myself over that fucking banister and he couldn't do it you know uh-huh. I don't think he would have ever have gone through it and mm-hmm. I think that the time that I'm most at risk is when I've self-medicated so in some way my brain function mm-hmm. is that, you know the chemicals in my brain is aren't working the way they're supposed to the, right. you know so whenever anybody's at risk from those thoughts mm. it's okay to have those thoughts yeah. it's not okay to, to act on those thoughts Correct. in a way that continues them or feeds them I think the way to, to deal with those feelings <clears throat> of depression or of suicide or of mm. darkness is to, to play with them and to make them your friend, you know, mm. like they take the bull by the horns kind yeah. of idea. So I, the black dog, accepting that every part of what goes on inside of you, mm. and and trying to give that compassion, is the first path to understanding. Until you can do that, it becomes like an area like you don't visit that place. You just push them into a box, and you mm. keep stuffing in it. If you don't acknowledge those feelings and thoughts mm. and, and impulses then eventually they gang up when you do inebriate yourself that's when it, they all that box explodes yeah. and you either don't come home for a week yeah or you don't come or, home at all or you don't come home at all uh. and I think that that's the difference between where I came from and what happens now I come from a place where it's like well if, that, if there's a problem with drinking then that stops drinking don't that yeah, and yeah. as opposed to yeah, it's you know, very like blunt. asking for help. <laughs> yeah, you know, like yeah, the idea of gonna uh, gonna that, That's why Ireland is, you know, has got such an alcohol problem because it's just I'll get over it. You know, yeah, but that yeah. that kind of approach. I mean, I did work on depression, you know, creatively, and, and I, that is one of the things you're told just as the worst thing to say to someone who's depressed. You know, yeah. you'll be all right. You know, and that's a very Irish thing. It's a yeah. very Sure. Everyone, yeah. everyone goes through that. So I met you then in Singapore, and I had never met you, and I, lo- I loved you when I met you, and you're you're just this really Bad mad. Ass. You were Bad mad, ass. and I mean you were mad in mad ways. Like you were, you had fucking drugs in Singapore, which is really mad thing to be doing. I'm not that sure, sure whether you should be saying that, but when you walk into a room, it was just here's Craig. You were interested in people. You were interested in people's stories. You didn't. It wasn't all about you. Like so even some of the stuff you've done in the last ten years, in my view, where you're much more considered in how you deal with people, I think, than you were back then. But you still had that. I mean you were you want to know people's stories where you were still looking for something. You were going, What's yeah. what's your deal? And yeah. I think that goes back to I'm a chameleon. Yeah. Here's a new set of clothes. Yeah. Help me understand those clothes so I can try them on. Mm. It's interesting to have you say that to me because a lot of that, my memories of those times, I always thought I was an obnoxious, egotistical prick. And I always thought that that was the facade that I needed to put out there. <laughs> <laughs> 
course. And it's, but it's lovely to hear that because yeah. I, it's like there's a lot. I did black out a lot. Yeah. I, d- I can't have regrets because I've lived my life through experiences yeah. and I haven't tried to repeat experiences. Yeah. I've repeated drugs, mm. but I've tried to take the, use those drugs to take me to different experiences. Mm. Some of them awesome, unimaginable, and some of them so sad or dark or yeah. horrible yeah. terrifying that I can only come out of them that walk of shame walking mm. home of like whew, I got away Dodged with it a bullet and, there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I pick myself up from feeling that remorse or guilt by saying one of my friends doesn't have to go through this or my kids won't have to because I'm experience this because I'm taking the book I'm going to tell them you know and it's oh I'm like, going to tell them okay, gonna, okay. I want to be able to share these yeah. stories yeah, yeah. this is probably the first time I've ever actually gone on record as to the conversations and experiences I've had like the the insanity like I still don't think it's insane to have drugs in yeah. Singapore I, yeah. like I just I, like when you get to know a place and it becomes so familiar then well it, it is insane because of the consequences well, it, of, of course, getting caught you know you yeah. end up with train tracks down your thank, arse for the rest of your life thank you, you for correcting me <laughs> you're right <laughs> yeah, um, yeah no it, it, it certainly is insane yeah. but it's it, it certain I guess what I'm trying to say is it, it it just felt normal and I think that that's part of my the problem that I've always had with authority is like it's more of my protest against being governed but the scary story behind this is is you and you remember this Craig just you just missed this there was a swoop on basically you know the gang you know there was a there was a party and there were about 50 people at a party and I was supposed to be at the party and 25 of those people actually ended up doing time and the reason I wasn't at that party was because I was so hungover <laughs> from the night before. I had a fight with my girlfriend and I remember going to see a friend and, uh, and smoking some crack and kind of walking all about 7 o'clock in the morning, like staggering into the house and I just couldn't bring myself to go to this party that night. Wow. The next day, a buddy of mine called and said, have you seen the newspaper? I'm like, no. He's like, get a newspaper, read the newspaper. When I got a newspaper and it was a story of this big bust. One of those moments where I, I like I think that when these things happen in life, there's a reason that I wasn't read I didn't need to learn that lesson. Right. Or there's a reason I've been spared that lesson. Yeah, maybe. maybe. And but either way I try and take it as I've got to try and do You're something. implying everyone at the party do, was ready. Do <laughs> no, I think we're, we just, we all have I think it's fucking lessons. fluke that you weren't there. But yeah, I mean, no. there were big hitters taking it. I want to go, yeah, I want to I get sort of the, um, I want to get to now, you moved to America. Why, why did you move to America? I was always terrified of the US. And I think having my entire career spent in Asia, they were big fish mm. in a very small pond. That's right. I had that same feeling that I had of being in England, mm. you know, and like I had to get away from this mm. or see what was beyond, especially in the advertising business. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like and you've never worked in London either, neither and I. Never I. Worked in I, London, I came never for the same reason. I say you yeah. gotta you gotta prove yourself in one of those two yeah. to say that you were actually any good at advertising. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote, sat down to write three letters to three agencies. The first letter was to Wyden Kennedy. Uh, set up a meeting. 
to meet Dan Wyden. You know, he has his own story, and I think he, he, he's done amazing things. And so to go to a place where I wanted to be close to this man, I wanted to be able to, yeah. to learn better ways. But the way I landed in Wyden, in Portland. You seemed happy then. I mean, I was so proud. I was so proud of myself. But the sad thing was that the casting wasn't right for me and a partner at the time. In hindsight, I still have to make amends with a few people. Right. I need somebody to have me back. Yeah. I can't be feeling insecure. I have to feel like I'm grounded and I have to feel in a good place. And so I went from having the, my dream job given probably like a 60% of what I knew was inside. Mm. And I'd, even to this day now, I think if I was to take a full-time job, that I would be proudest to take a job back at Wine Kennedy Portland. Yeah. And I have I, to say, I think I agree with you about the, someone having your back or at least being able to trust your co-workers and yeah, colleagues. Yeah. And that, that's actually not just a widen or that guy thing. That's a yeah. kind of... A, corporate culture thing you're encouraged to be in competition with your colleague yeah. at your level yeah. because they somehow think oh they can they can like rats in a cage and one yeah. will emerge yeah. victorious and it's yeah. kind of horrible it's what we yeah, got yeah. When we talked about earlier about the ad business talk to me then about how the wheels fell off so yeah so after I think I was at 18 months I was in Portland and uh, things weren't working out and I, I accept responsibility I have at the end of the day, we can only blame ourselves. It's yes. very easy to point fingers. I didn't have the chops. From there on, I had these three months of transition where I kind of wound it down with Wyden. So we moved to New York, got married, and started a new job at, um, BBH. at BBH. That's right. So, and that was going really well. But again, I not finding my feet is less about my inefficiencies as a as a as a human being mm -hmm. but more about the the transition between east and west yeah. i came from a way of doing advertising and winning awards yeah. to a place that did it differently more grown that was up. more constrained more grown up more mm. process oriented and, Duller. And yeah, duller, yeah. certainly. So I have a I good story around this. And this is a time when people like Andy, you know, uh, who Craig introduced me to back in Singapore, and we were partners, but that we were worried about you because I came over from I came over from Asia for a trip to New York and we yeah. went you were having trouble with your ex wife uh -huh. and you said, Oh, I need you to talk to her. And I said, well, I don't really know her. And he said, no, come on, come on over. Help <laughs> come, me. Yeah, come over, it's Sunday, come on over. And, and I went over to Brooklyn from my hotel in mid-ten, whatever. And we were in some little wooden bar near your house. And it was Sunday afternoon. Brooklyn and we were, Yeah, we were drinking there. And we were drinking bottles of beer. And you were telling me what was going on. And, you know, you were, in, you were in a bad way. And for every one bottle I was having, you were having two. And I was yeah. like, okay, I haven't seen yeah, this yeah. fucking speed drinking before. Yeah. And, and then we went back and you said, right, talk to Sean. And then you went downstairs and I was yeah. like, I, I only met your wife for the first yeah, time yeah, then. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, really, I was like, fuck, this is awkward. And, and then we went out to a party down the road and it was like, fuck, we're going out. And it was like, it was, it was full on. It was, yeah, yeah. was Sunday. I didn't get up for work the next day. I was wrecked. Yeah, no, but, but yeah, so the, the, I'm, I'm assuming this was par for the course you were partying just as hard in an yeah. environment and in a situation that doesn't really like or allow that everybody I knew at some point was 
partying hard, going hard in some way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah. It's just that I didn't. I was always that last person. Was like everybody go home? So I go from being the life and soul of the party to where's everybody gone? Yeah. And I'm on my own. And now I'm like, fuck, you know, terrified of being on my own. Yeah. So I do more drugs or yeah. I drink more or yeah. I go find another party. Why were you terrified me. to be on your own? I just, I never had the chance to get acquainted with myself. Right. I, you know, I think part of running at life so fast, life ultimately slows you down. Yeah. And like being a partier, the process of life, yeah. getting married, meeting someone, going through the, the machinations of settling down and planting yeah. roots and preparing for children. If you don't really kind of adjust to that process, eventually you find yourself in isolation and you have to, to make a decision. Mm. Do I keep this life going? Or yeah. do, I, do I come to a point where I just say, okay, what do I want to do from here? And it's like that come to Jesus or like... Was there, know, a, that, was that there a conversation? And I think at, that at BBH, it actually came to a head at the BBH 25-year anniversary yeah. in Miami. That being a, just a great party, but I remember somebody handed me three Vicodin for the, for the weekend. And I just unknowingly just kind of popped in, which is kind of like the habit. And I just turned into this crazy person and unfortunately you know the entire office were office there. global yeah, kind of community yeah. of BBH were present and <coughs> some of them noticed and some of them didn't but mm. I think there were certain instances that raised eyebrows yeah. and then when we got back to New York I was taken into a room and an amazing lady who was the HR lady at the time said to me Craig we know you like to party and we're not critical of the work that you do here because we think you're an awesome member of the team and we love the work, we really appreciate it. But you spend so much time at the office. But the way you party, there's a point where in the office and in this environment, you need to know that we can't protect you. There's a point where we just can't protect you. But we want to help you. Mm. And at, this was that point where I was like, facade came up that northern English language yeah. is like what, 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 what meant because I'm drinking yeah. like yeah. what like I'm the only one it's yeah. like look at and I started yeah. like thinking all Making these excuses. people that I'm surrounded by that are like crazy as yeah. I am but uh, for whatever reason I was no, that, crazy that party got back to me you know right. I mean yeah, you yeah. know it's like, like that went around the town and I saw I mean and it's like that's hard it still kind of sends makes me Cringe, cringe, yeah. yeah. And it's like you know, like I, I, it's it makes me tearful, like kind of talking about it. But I, this, I think this is part of it. I've got to be able to share these stories mm. openly. And you know, at that point in that room, you know, I had to make this decision. Well, obviously, I'm being given a warning. This is a time where I need to decide where do I go from here. Do I want? To continue my career, do I want to advance yeah. on this path, or do I just want to take a dog leg and just get back on it? And I, I think this is like more than anything. The reason I want to share this is because this is an example of a corporation taking Doing care the, of its people. Yeah. I guess not every corporation can afford forty grand to send their yeah. their people to rehab, yeah. but that was what was offered. Well, the the irony is they can't. 
They can, yeah. yeah. They no, just don't they bother can. their fucking yeah. holes. Um, but they, they, they did, and they did it right, and the, the management took care of me. And so, the, and the next day, I was on a plane to Minnesota to Hazelden, yeah. and I went and spent six weeks in Minnesota. I made a decision. I'm going through this. I've decided to do this. So, like, well, let's bring it on. And I took my video camera and I wanted to make a documentary. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> this is all about. See if I see any famous like, people. None of that bullshit, Craig. <laughs> it's like this is about you going inside, yeah. which was my greatest fear. Yeah, of course. Craig Smith getting to know. Craig, I mean, it Craig might be Smith. useful for you. I mean, people were very aware of this all over the world. And, yeah. and worried about you because you are, you are a very loved guy believe it or not you know a lot of people do love and care for you deeply and uh, there was a huge exhalation of breath when that happened because there was a I uh, don't cry <laughs> there was an implicit part of your friends myself included when we think about you that something bad is going to happen yeah Something really bad's going to happen, yeah. you know. And when I what I mean by that is, without being putting too fine a point, that death is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And there was an exhalation of breath when that happened. And I th- I I think you, uh, I knew that it. that's a that is I, actually yeah. that people talk about needing to have a line in the sand. And yeah. I think that was it. And I think yeah, you yeah. charged at it the way you charge at things, and it yeah. was good that you did it yeah, that yeah. way. That's when you stand up and yeah. say, I'm an alcoholic. It took me a week to say that. Did it really? And it took me another week to say, I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. Wow. And it took me maybe like October 17, 2007 was when it began. The To today, I now, I am an addict. I'm just an addict. For me, it's a path to wholesomeness right. as opposed to... Oh, you mean you're addicted to a path to ultimate? Yeah. Okay, you're trying to... It's like, it's whatever it is... Did you fall fall a few times? Did you go back on the booze or drugs? No, I I think... smoke pot, right? Yeah, smoke pot. And I I have done that. And I, you know, like, I think that's something that you have to practice. It was was the the last drug of my choice. I liked the uppers. I liked to be able to go fast. Yeah. Weed has actually helped me in ways that like meditation helps yes me. yes it takes me to a place of having no choice but to be present once you get over the panic and your mind racing is like my mind isn't doing what my body's doing yeah. oh fuck i'm dying and once you get through that panic of being altered yeah in a different way and for yeah. me it was being slowed down and you get to a place of acceptance of being still but being able to channel your mind in a way where you can mm. you can listen to what's going on inside, mm. listen to the feelings, and then have a conversation with those feelings with yeah. yourself. It's like, well, you know, what does this feeling mean? Learning to deal with shit that you can deal with, mm-hmm. that you that is closest, that mm-hmm. is most urgent, of greatest priority, yeah. and most relevant to who you are and yeah. to what your aspirations are, what your needs are. And starting there, and starting to pass this information, like like I've been doing, I do a lot of vipassana meditation. Now, mm-hmm. my wife is my my guide for that, and you know, every morning she. You have like, a new wife, it must be said. I have yeah. a new wife, Co is, Min, is, Min Co, and I haven't really she's, met. She's part of my salvation. Yeah. Um, how hard was it to stay clean? That I. Um, the, the breaking point for me in rehab 
was the therapist said to me, what does it feel like? And I was trying to explain this kind of sense of anxiety of like, I don't exist or like I'm not complete. And she says like, it's like, an, like a hole, like a hole that you're trying to fill. And it's like, it's like that feeling when you're high or you've done a line and then you do another line, then you do another line and you start getting that, mm, oh, I need a drink and then I need a cigarette. Mm. And it's just, you're constantly chasing just like this feeling that you don't want this feeling to come back. Yeah. And as soon as you start coming down, you start feeling this like sense of isolation and, and emptiness and yeah. lack of work, sense of yeah. worth. I remember telling her, and I just burst into tears, and I'm like, how do you know? Yeah. And, that, and, and I think, like I've said a lot about understanding that we're all the same, but we're so different. Yeah. You know, and we're so different because of the way we've been taught. Mm-hmm. And, but we're all the same because we're kind of people chemically with similar and with the same structure and the same genetic makeup in many mm. ways and that mixture of things was that was that point where I started to understand the secret and the secret was it's like like everybody has that emptiness everybody has like feelings of negativity and but not everybody makes that jump of that there's something that's not right that's not working that's not working and then dealing with that it's like getting to know a person it wasn't about the drink or the drugs I'm an addict Mm. I'm an addict to like greens green Mm. juices to running to rock climbing to football to friendship and that's it and it's like everybody that has an addictive personality is in danger Mm. of living life to the absolute fullest and having an amazing life Mm. or breaking themselves mm. it's it's a shift of mindset from I am afflicted to I have a gift yeah and it all it was is just I needed somebody to put their arm around me and say look you know there's a different way of running at this yeah. and BBH helped me on that path yeah and uh, Hazelden helped me understand where I was on that path I have the knowledge of where these paths lead to now I don't want to go back and so like the the decision is much greater than I want to drink that's what leads to being what they call a dry drunk a good way of saying it is like I decided that there's a new drug and this new drug is getting to know me the more I went inside of who I was which was my fear and as a result I was running away from I, I just I was just a runner I had a feeling I blocked it, I medicated, I ran away from the the bad things. And I think rehab was the first time where I realized I could stand Mm -hmm. and face this. And all the other stuff that I was stressing about, nothing really mattered. So it was that programming that then I just applied to, like when I came out, it wasn't like nothing's changed. Mm. You know, it's just that I found a different way of looking at this. Right. That programming that I'd been doing to justify all the bullshit that I, that I, that happened to me mm. was actually, I, I learned to refine that tool or that process. When I have a feeling now, it's like, oh, it's a navigation instead of this is a feeling of anxiety it's like well that feeling it's not fear it's either coming from guilt jealousy anger frustration insecurity what is this on the scale of fear what Mm. how do i put a name to that 
Yeah. So learning to understand fears, I wasn't afraid. All that darkness was just, it just lifted. And it wasn't the alcohol that put the darkness there. Right. It was myself, my own programming that kept the darkness there. And, and society has said, it's, it's drink and drugs that has created this. But yeah. actually, it's just, I just never had the tools to be the best version of right. me. So coming out, I started to realize that getting high on life, I guess it, 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 it's real. And it's just like taking a drug. But like, so, I mean, there is, I mean, and again, that's a framework, which I think is very solid and it makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. The, but the practical applications, I mean, you don't have to answer, but like, did you fall off the wagon a few times? Did you, did you start drinking? So there was a time where I, I went out to dinner parties, you know, like lots of dinner parties and I'd have a drink like by accident. I'd pick a glass up and I'd drink and I'd spit it out. Right. And then it started happening and I'd be like, Okay, I'll, just, I'll spit some of it out. Yeah, but I, I never, I never actually drank until last year. Oh, this is the first time I've actually had this conversation. But well, we don't I mean, have to I've, keep. We no, don't have to keep it in. If you no, want. the like the honesty. Yes, is, okay, is, is why I needed to yes, establish okay. the honesty thing because when you lose honesty, mm. you lose the right to be yourself. The problem with addictions is shame. Yes. And the shame is created by not being honest. Yes. But the hardest thing as an addict is to say, you know what, when I go on this road trip, I want to have a sit down and I want to have a beer with my dad at the campfire. Because my dad still comes from that camp. And if they knew that it was going to make, make me want to drink, he wouldn't drink. And it, like even to a point where he's like, oh, Craig, you know, if you're going to start drinking, I, I don't need to drink, I don't, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you know. But it's like, no, Dad, it's like, this is actually, it, it's just it's part bonding, but it's like, it, it means I know that I wasn't a, a dependent addict, phys- biologically dependent yes. addict. I know that I was addicted to the habit Yes, and it's about changing the habit, yeah. changing that process. That so you were able to have a couple of beers with your dad. So when we went on a on a recent road trip, on RV trip, I started having a beer with him. Yeah, I, I still like that buzz. Like I'll have one, and then it's like I, you know I'll just nick a couple and I'll enjoy that buzz, and that'll set me up for the day. The discipline of keeping it to that, but yeah. I like to get shit faced. Yeah. yeah, I like being high. I like the yeah. what it does to my brain. I like the the creativity, but I have to say, I'm just as creative or more creative when I don't do any of that stuff. Mm. Tell me the role Kodiak had to play in this. You suddenly appeared again in the in the wilds of Alaska. I came back from from rehab at BBH. They stopped me from going on a few jobs, mm-hmm. but there was a job that came up which was. Uh, to shoot a clinical therapy campaign for Vaseline in Kodiak off the coast of Alaska, population around 10,000 people. Everybody has a diverse kind of lifestyle. The weather conditions are diverse. Everybody has more than one job. They live off the land. They they have a thing called subsistence so they can catch a a quarter of halibut or fish and Mm. salmon. Uh, you know, and different meat, deer and bear and things like that. At that time, there was probably 20 hours of daylight. 
And so I turn up in my waders with all my fishing gear in the car, having spent two or three hours fishing already. Turned up at the shoe. We went to a different person's house, interviewed them, made a, made a mini documentary about them, yeah. their life, yeah. from the point of view of their, how it affected their skin. Yeah. Uh, and then I would take off and go fishing again. And I think it was just this realization of this is what humanity is, the, the highest point of humanity, coexisting, taking care of the land because the land feeds you and understanding where your food comes from and what goes into that food because you have to catch it. And also the sense of community, taking care of people. I think anybody that is in any kind of recovery, they'll say community is your savior. You know, like I always say to my people that I talk to on a daily, weekly basis that when they fall off the wagon, and I know they're not answering the call, one message I always leave them is, it's not as bad as your mind is telling you it is. Yeah, I agree. Go totally. to bed. Yeah. Wake up in the morning. Start and, again. And start again. It's okay. Somebody told me a great thing, which is the chasm of the past. Right. Yeah, yeah. There's one step into the future and there's a chasm of the past. Oh, that's cool. It's a cool one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I you also mentioned before we went, we, we, we pressed record, that this is somehow elementally back to Sheffield and north of England. So I like it. I think... I come from a family, mum's side, of poachers and hunters and mm. fishermen. And, you know, granddad was a, a, a massive nature buff. Running and playing in the streams and making tars yeah. and swings and shooting sparrows with an egg on and, you yeah. know, like living with nature and seeing nature and having that as being a, a barometer against mm. life. We're part of what we're doing like with Smith & Co., the company I've set up with my wife. One of the projects that we have is human nature. And in that, it's about creating juxtapositions between humanity yeah. and nature and how fucked up that process is. Give a plug for where people can see your work on uh, oh, Smith & Co. Oh, Smith and, smithandco.com. Smithandco.com, okay. Yeah, smithandco.com. So Tell us what it is. broken down into, uh, into three components. Be, say, and do. So right. who, what we are and who we are is be. Yeah. So be yourself yeah. uh, and, and share it. Yeah. Be honest about it. And then say is the blog part where we say and we share all the things that we're doing and, and the process. And do is the part where that's like the gallery where we show all our art. So um, Smith & Co. Smith is from Sheffield, England, uh, from the West. And Ko is from Seoul, Korea, yang. from the east. So there's a little bit of yin and yang yeah. there. And so really just trying to find a familiar place where we can fit. Yeah. Things like what we're doing today, Sean, is just collaborations with like, people you love who are just trying to find a different path and who care about people and want to make a difference. Uh, by sharing our discoveries that people will start to reciprocate that and doors will start to open easily the most candid guest i've had on the show and also somebody who you can see i hope is sharing some quite difficult things with people in, in a hope to allow his experiences to be helpful to other people and to help change the world i wish you all the best in your new venture it's great to see you again mate yeah likewise buddy. thank you and thanks for listening anybody out there needs a, an ear drop me a line on smithandco.com Take care, bud. Cheers.